all today. And I uh, just want to welcome everybody from Greenbush, <laughs> Saratoga, Half Moon. The Half Moonites are with us, yeah, and the Lathamites as well. We're glad that you're here, and uh, what an awesome time of worship we've already had and will continue to have today. I was probably a boy of 10 when I first heard Billy Graham tell the story of Blondin, the tightrope walker. It's one of the best illustrations of faith that I've ever heard, and I Heard him tell it many times after this, but I was riveted the first time I ever heard this provocative story. You see, Charles Blondin was an immigrant to the U.S., and he came here already uh, as someone very accomplished, but he became extremely interested, most would say obsessed, with Niagara Falls. And so he got the idea, always he was looking to draw a crowd, and do something that would intrigue people and also continue to provide him a living and so on, he decided to string a cord, a hemp rope, a cord, across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet. And this cord was 160 feet above the falls. And so, to everyone's amazement, he was able to cross over on that tightrope to the other side and back again safely. And he actually did this on numerous occasions and always, always drew a crowd. The first time, it's estimated 100,000 people saw him do that. But he also did some other stunts up on the tightrope. <laughs> he uh, once took a chair out there and he stood up on the chair on the tightrope. Amazing. Crowd went wild. Uh, on another occasion, he cooked an omelet. And by the way, all of this is a true story. It's very well documented, actually. And there's actually a picture of this. He cooked an omelet out in the middle of the tightrope over Niagara Falls and then lowered it down to a boat below so that the people in the boat could eat the omelet. But perhaps the best known stunt that Charles Blondin ever did, and this is the one that Billy Graham told is that he got the idea of putting about 150 pounds of sand in a wheelbarrow. And he pushed that across the tightrope. And the crowds, of course, were adoring and cheering. And he said to them, do you believe I could, instead of the sand, do you believe I could push a person across? And, of course, the crowd roared, we believe you can, we believe you can. He said, okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? right? <laughs> and believe it or not, a guy named Harry Colcord, well documented, Harry Colcord, who had seen him do this again and again and again, decided to take the risk, put his life in Blondin's hands, and get in. And of course, Billy Graham's point was, it's not enough to stand on the sidelines and just profess faith Real saving faith is where we put our lives, our very lives, all that we are, into the hands of the master. And we trust him. We take action based on what we believe. What an incredible story. We're in a series right now called Boot Camp Basics. And I got the idea for this series and that this was the first book in the Bible still amazes me, of all the places where God could have 
called me to kind of camp out and drill down and learn some things. It was the first book of scripture ever committed to memory as a 13-year-old in Leoma, Tennessee. And I've convinced that one of the reasons God drew me there was because of these incredibly important boot camp basics, these lessons that we can learn from the book of James. And we've been looking at those for a couple of weeks. And today, I want us to continue. And again, I remind you, we're not looking at every verse in James in this series, but we are going to highlight, just kind of cherry pick, if you will, some of the most important life lessons found here in this amazingly practical book. So I start reading now from James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save it? What a provocative question. By the way, it's one of the things James does. He asks these provocative questions in a sort of diatribe fashion, this Jewish uh, rabbinic way of kind of arguing and teaching and making a point. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And then he takes a little different turn, imagining uh, sort of an opponent here who's pushing back a little bit. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Then he responds, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder, you foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he appeals back to, he's going to appeal to two figures here. And they're kind of opposite extremes in some ways in, in terms of how they were known. And yet they both appear in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith there. He first talks about Abraham. Everyone knew Abraham's story, every Jewish person. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You can read that story in Genesis 22 if you'd like to get a little background on that. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And then he makes this amazing summary statement, which has been the crux of so much debate, because it seems to be in direct tension with other teachings in the Bible. He says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, and this is the other person he appeals to, Rahab the prostitute, who also appears in Hebrews 11, Hall of Faith. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And then the conclusive statement, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It was 1987, the spring... 
and I was in Anderson, South Carolina, of all places. I had a couple of friends I'd gone to college with who lived there, Greg Wilson and Herb Phillips, and we met up one evening after the classes I was teaching, and we had some dinner and kind of got caught up on life. But I was there for four weeks in a row teaching a Christian life and witness class. And I'll never forget one of the more dramatic things that ever happened in one of those classes. It was just classes to help people kind of share their faith more effectively in an upcoming evangelistic event. And in the first evening, when I came to the end of the class, I had allowed a few minutes for questions and answers. And I'll never forget it. A man that I later learned was kind of known as the town atheist who had a practice of attending Christian meetings to, it was believed, cause havoc. He said in a rather dramatic way, how can I possibly justify the contradictions in the Bible? And he particularly pointed to, to this one. He said the blatant contradiction between Paul and James about how a person is saved. Paul says it's by faith. James says it's by works or deeds. How can you possibly reconcile those? And he asked that question in a dramatic way, very loudly. And boy, I could just feel the tension in the room rise. Wow. Well, I was about 25 years old. And uh, I, uh, thankfully, was familiar with both of these passages. And so I thought, man, he's being so strong here and so dramatic. I'm going to be dramatic too. And I said, yeah, you're right. And then I quoted them. I said, for instance, Paul says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then James has the audacity to say, you see then how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're right. How can you possibly reconcile those two statements and then I pause dramatically in fact I paused for so long I think some of the Christians in the room stopped breathing for a while I mean the tension was thick and I said I believe the explanation lies in the audience receiving it and in the purpose for which the author was writing quite honestly James, for instance, is writing to people who are already clearly saved, but are just getting a little sloppy in the way they're living their lives, and there's some gap, some lack of continuity between their faith and the evidence of their faith. Paul, on the other hand, especially in books like Galatians and Romans, is telling his gospel. He's sharing with these dear people the message that he preaches everywhere he goes about how a person can come to the point of believing. So you see, their purposes are extremely, very, very different. And so these texts have to be clearly understood within the context for which they were being written. And I waxed on like that for a few minutes. And finally some... Christians in the room raised their hands with other questions, and we moved on. But my response to that guy that day, the town atheist who wanted to wreak havoc, everybody thought, wherever he went, would be my same response to you today. Any text, including today's, must be understood within the context for which it is written. Now, I'm going to set this up a little longer today than I usually do in most messages, so go with me here, and then we'll get to your outline and your notes, and we'll move rapidly through that. But I believe I know something about you. 
I really do. I know this about you. You have trouble holding two parallel truths in tension. I hardly ever meet a Christian who doesn't have trouble with that. And yet we have to. If we're going to be faithful, biblical people, we have to take statements in the Bible, propositional truths, if you will. We have to make, take declarations of truth, and we have to hold them in tension. Because sometimes there is a palpable tension between the statements. I call them antinomies. An apparent contradiction, both statements are nonetheless true. And I think that Christians struggle with doing that. We tend to fall on one side or the other, and that's a problem. Because if you deny either of the statements, you've just become a heretic. That's the problem. You've got to hold some things in tension if you're going to be a faithful biblical Christian. Let me go a little further. Some of you grew up in churches where you were taught a philosophy that I would characterize like this. Salvation, or rather faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. You were taught that. It's called legalism or works righteousness. And here's what you were taught. You were taught about faith, and that it's important. But you were also taught that we've also got to earn this. We work with God... And we really essentially earn his salvation. So yeah, you have faith, but you also have to add your works to that. And you have to essentially be good enough to go to heaven. And you just better hope by the end of your life that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And then you'll be okay. So if you keep enough rules, jump through enough religious hoops, go to church enough out of guilt or whatever, you'll be okay. Faith plus works equals salvation. I hope you understand today that is not what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, by contrast, some of you have grown up in traditions where you were taught faith minus works equals salvation. Faith minus works equals salvation. And that might be called license or easy believism or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace. So here's how the teaching kind of goes. Faith minus works equals salvation. As long as you just believe the right stuff, you're good to go. As long as you can check off the boxes, as long as you can quote the Apostle Creed and kind of believe it, it doesn't matter what kind of choices you make or what your lifestyle looks like. As long as you believe the right stuff, you're all set and good to go. Again, I say, I hope you understand that is not what the Bible teaches. James, by the way, seems to be addressing this second group more than the first. James is going to tell these people that have fallen into some kind of understanding of cheap grace, look, it's not faith plus works that equals salvation that saves you, and it's not faith minus works that saves you, it's faith that works that saves you. And that's why I've entitled this message, Faith That Works. By the way... Intro's almost over. In my opinion, cheap grace is a huge problem in the United States of America. My opinion. If you disagree, that's fine. I don't want to argue about it. But to me, the statistical evidence is overwhelming. I mentioned to you recently that Debbie and I just got back from a 
conference in California, and one of our speakers there one morning was Ed Stetzer. Dr. Ed Stetzer has two earned doctoral degrees, two earned master's degrees. Uh, he has written a bunch of books and dozens and dozens of articles. He's currently the interim pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Uh, he's planted like four churches. I don't know how he did all that in his life, but uh, he's still going strong. He would be at least in the top five experts of religion in America. Just Google his name, you'll be amazed. Ed Stetzer, okay? Says a lot of good stuff. Well, Stetzer shared with us about 50 people in the room. He said that every survey, every study, every sociological or religious inquiry ever conducted in America, America has this alarming percentage of people, he said, who would self-identify as Christian. They would self-identify, check that box, but who do not take their faith seriously at all. Or believe that it should in any way affect their daily life. That's what the research shows. Now think about that. These are people that would say God is important to them. They're spiritual. I'm really a spiritual person, they would say. I really believe in God and my faith is really important to me. They would say that with their mouths. But when it comes to lifestyle, when it comes to morality, their practices day by day, it simply doesn't line up with what they say they value. So let's dive in now. With that as a backdrop, and let's try to keep the biblical balance, because I'll tell you one thing, brothers and sisters, Scripture is crystal clear that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I hope you understand, it's crystal clear. But Scripture is also crystal clear that genuine faith, the real article, will ultimately issue in a lifestyle that is in keeping with repentance. You've got to hold both of those in tension. Are you going to go off the rails and become a heretic? So by God's grace, let's hold those truths in tension. First of all, I want to expose two myths about faith that kind of need to be exposed and exploded. One is, we tend to confuse faith with merely believing the right facts. I chuckled when I remembered this week what W.A. Criswell, the Baptist preacher in Texas, used to do. He used to preach a sermon that was one of his most famous sermons called The Orthodoxy of the Devil. <laughs> and he had a lot of fun with this. And I never heard him do it, but I've read the sermon in a book that he wrote. And he would... He would really play with the congregation and go, hey, the devil approached me this week and said he wanted to join First Baptist. Do you think we need to let him? And people would talk back to W.A. Criswell during the sermon more than usual. And he, he said, well, I asked him, hey, do you believe in the virgin birth? He said, oh, yeah. I was there when Gabriel made the announcement. I know it's true. Well, do you believe that Jesus taught like no one else, and the crowds love to listen to him. Do you believe that he lived a perfect life? Oh, yes. I dogged his steps. I saw every move he made. I wanted to catch him in some evil. I was not only there in the wilderness temptation, I was there to, all the way to Gethsemane and beyond. I know it's true. And he went on and on in this mode. Do you believe he died an atoning death on the cross? Do you believe he bodily rose again from the dead? dead and the devil could say yes to everyone will you be a faithful church member devil oh i'll be here every time the doors are open Woo! i'll even join the choir 
Yeah? And he went on and on like this. And by the end, the crowd was just cackling with laughter. But he said, but there's one more question I have for you, devil. Have you repented of your sins and yielded your life completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ? And of course, the answer is no. What was his point? Right belief is not enough. That's why verse 19 is so pivotal. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. So let's nail down in our souls today, there is a belief in certain propositions or fa facts that is not saving faith. So let's not confuse biblical knowledge with faith. Jesus said, if you've really got faith, a real relationship with God, it's going to show in the fruit of your life. In Matthew 7, he spoke to this issue, and he said, look, if someone's saying the right things, if someone appears to have a certain kind of faith, all you need to do is check out their fruit. By their fruit, you will know them. And that passage ends like this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if your tree of faith today has no fruit growing on it, with all somberness, I ask you to examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith. Can you point? If you were accused, if you were on trial of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's an important thing to explore and ask. We regularly get to see the joy of having people baptized at Grace. That's so wonderful. What a great moment in worship. It's one of my favorites. To see them obey Christ in the waters of baptism and to declare that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord. But I say to you with all sobriety, what good is that if it doesn't make a teenager a more respectful teenager? What good is that if it doesn't make a husband or wife more sensitive and godly in their daily living? What good is that if it doesn't make you a better employee or employer? What good is that if it doesn't ultimately issue in some life transformation and we become better friends and better people to be around and a little bit less crotchety? Hallelujah. And more at peace because we're walking with God and he's changing us from the inside out. Make no mistake, James rings the bell and sounds the trumpet. Faith without works is dead. It is not the real article. But there's a second myth that I just want to quickly address, and that is we confuse faith with feelings. I point you again to verse 19. If your Bible is open there, or your portable device, you believe there is one God good. Even the demons believe that. And this is one of my favorite Greek words. I have a few Greek words that I just say therapeutically sometimes. One of them is skubala. It means manure, okay? And I just say it, skubala, skubala. Nobody knows what I'm saying. I just say skubala. On a regular basis. It's, it's a wonderful Bible word, okay? And there are other words like splachnois, which is the word for compassion in the Bible. And to me, there's just something therapeutic about saying that. Well, well, this is another one of those examples of Greek words that I just love to go around saying for Zeusin. 
Frazusen. When it says that the demons know that there's a God, they've got wonderful theology, and that knowledge makes them Frazusen. It makes them shudder. The picture here is like a cat where every hair is standing on end. The cat is bristling up in fear. I'm concerned about some Christians that we confuse saving faith with certain warm feelings we get with certain Christian experiences. I talk to brothers and sisters on a regular basis and I say, hey, how's it going? What's the Lord doing in your life these days? And they may share something or say something good and I say, oh, that is so awesome. I celebrate with you. But sometimes I'll say, how do you know? And often... Don't get paranoid if this is your answer. This is an okay answer, but it's not all you should say. They say, well, I just feel it. I just feel that it's true. Okay. Now hear me clearly today. With a genuine Christian walk, there should be deep and profound passion and feelings. I say to people regularly, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're probably never going to succeed. Would you agree with that? You show me an athlete who's not passionate about his or her sport, and I'll show you somebody who's probably going to be mediocre the rest of their life. There needs to be passion about what we're doing. And I, I, I don't get very pumped up about Christians that have no passion for God. Read Jonathan Edwards' book, Religious Affections, especially if you struggle sleeping at night. It'll really help you. But it's an awesome book. The theology is amazing. And he highlights the importance of appropriate and profound passion in the Christian life. We need it. But I fear that some of us sing songs in church and we feel this little warmth inside. And we mistake that for saving faith. I believe that the best evidence of saving faith is what we do when we leave the building. So please understand that. It's wonderful that we come together. We're commanded to. We ought to keep doing it. We need to be robust in our worship and have appropriate and genuine and deep and profound passion for God. Oh, I want to see more passion in our worship. Hallelujah, I do. Make no mistake. The number one litmus test is not what we do in the walls of this building. It's what we do when we hit the parking lot. So don't kill your neighbor out there, okay? What do you do in your neighborhood? What do you do in your workplace? What do you do out on the streets of the capital district? So I've summarized it like this. Consider this statement. Real faith, real faith, the genuine article, is rooted in right belief. There is a theological content to it. It's often accompanied by deep feelings. Do not disparage the feelings. They're so important. But always, ultimately, expresses itself in biblically faithful actions. So as we go down home stretch here, I quickly want to apply this. And I'm going to get a little personal here. It's going to be fun. Three questions that need to be answered. I want to probe a bit. First question, I'm asking you to be your own diagnostician today. Question number one, how wide is the gap between what I profess and what I practice? How wide is that gap? Now, sometimes the gap is huge. One of the most interesting books I've ever read 
is by Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson is an eminent historian. Google him, you'll find tons of stuff. This book is simply called Intellectuals, <laughs> provocative title. I picked this up years ago, and uh, it's such an interesting read, Intellectuals. What he does is highlight the lives of some of the most impactful thinkers of history. And he talks about what their major theme was and what they promoted, and then he compares that to how they actually lived. Now, Paul Johnson is, is not this, you know, super spiritual, pious, uh, self-righteous kind of dude who's trying to, you know, call everybody out. He's just doing a good historical expose here on the lives of people who've shaped our thinking and shaped our culture in huge ways, but whose personal lives did not line up with what they taught. Let me give you one example. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Do not confuse him with Jacques Cousteau, the underwater guy who had the show all those years and did all these dives underwater. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if you know anything about French history, he was one of the key leaders of the so-called French Enlightenment. His major message was love. Be kind to people. Look out for their interests. He called, if Facebook was around then, his profile would have been like this. Rousseau, the consummate humanitarian. That's the way he branded himself. Love, love, love. He preached love for humanity more than most preachers ever do. That was Rousseau. But while he was a teacher of love, how did Rousseau actually live? Well, as Johnson points out, it, he was estranged <clears throat> largely from his father and seemed to want nothing to do with him except for getting the family inheritance. Likewise, with his long-lost brother, made no contact with him other than when he heard his brother was dead, he quickly rushed so he could certify his death so he could get in on the family money that was coming to him. Historians have carefully researched his life and know that he had at least five illegitimate children... And every one of them was put immediately after birth into a hospital for unwanted infants where two-thirds of the infants died within the first year because of the horrendous conditions there. And only 14 out of 100 made it even to the age of seven. It's believed that none of Rousseau's children survived. And Rousseau did not even give any of those children so much dignity as to give them even a name. Wow. Now, friends, that's what you call blatant hypocrisy. The gap between Rousseau's profession and his practice was huge. Now, for most of us, the gap may not be that big, but it's still very real. Let me illustrate it from my own life. I profess to really value physical health. I do. I mean, follow me around. I will go to the gym virtually every day. Many of you go to the gym I go to. You see me there. We talk there. I lift weights on a regular systematic basis. I do cardio. I am very, I take supplements and vitamins to try to keep myself reasonably heavy. Uh, heavy. <laughs> That's what I'm going for, the ultimate weight, baby. 
reasonably healthy. And some people tease me and call me the fiber king because I take so much extra fiber in my diet, believing we don't have enough. I believe in physical health, but well, I do some things in that regard. If you put a pint of my favorite premium ice cream in front of me, get out of my way. I mean, I'm going to polish those 1,400 calories off quicker than you can blink. You know what? I'm a hypocrite. I am. I say I value physical health, but eh, not really. I really value my own pleasure more than I do real physical health. There's a gap there. Now, we can chuckle about that in some areas of life, but there's other areas where the gap is not quite so funny. How big is the gap in your life between what you profess to believe and what you actually do? Do you say you believe sex is a special and even sacred thing? So special, in fact, that it's reserved for a man and woman in the sanctity of marriage? Is that what you profess? But how do you actually live? You say you believe we're blessed to be a blessing. You believe like Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You believe Paul when he says in the Bible, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, let me ask you, how do you live? Do you tithe as a minimum? Do you regularly sow seeds of generosity that God will use to bring forth fruit? Or is there a gap there? You say you believe the Bible's God's word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Do you ever open it? Do you ever crack it open? Do you ever memorize a verse or two so that God can literally kind of reprogram your mind, your identity, so you can flourish in your Christian life? You say Jesus and his kingdom is the most important thing to you in the world. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Really? Okay, cool. Does your calendar and your checkbook reflect that? Because those don't lie. Now hear me today. This is not some supreme guilt trip. That's not the purpose. All God's children got a gap. Would you say the word gap with me, please? Say the word gap. All God's children got a gap in our lives between what we profess and what we practice. Closing that gap is what the Bible calls sanctification. You don't want that gap to be wide. As we grow in maturity, it needs to be closing. Nobody lives out their faith perfectly. And I've heard to ask you, if anybody here does, and if a hand were to go up, then I would be welcoming the Lord Jesus himself in the flesh, because he's the only one who ever did. Second question. What seems to be the greatest obstacle that keeps me from fully living what I profess to believe? That's huge. What is it for you? And there's lots of options there. I mean, it could be that you've just not been challenged enough. That happens. We can live in such complacency and such a protected sort of greenhouse environment as Christians that we don't get around many challenges. Or perhaps you've fallen into easy believism and you think, hey, pastor, my ticket's punched, baby. I prayed that prayer, you know, years ago. Remember that? I said, Jesus, I love you and I want to be saved and forgiven. Okay. Was that real? Hey, listen, I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but if there's no life change going on, I, 
I have no reason to believe that means a thing to you other than trying to check a box. What is it for you? Maybe it's people in your life. Maybe that's the thing, that the obstacle that holds you back. This happens too. Some people take three steps forward but two steps back because every time they begin to close the gap a little bit between what they profess and they believe, they've got some cynical people around them, maybe a spouse who doesn't believe, maybe family members who are critical, think they're a fanatic, maybe some close friends that they're not willing to maybe part with but those friends keep pulling them down. What is it? Here's my counsel. The best thing you could do when you identify that obstacle is to then say, what do I need to do about this? But until you identify the obstacle, you can't know what to do. So get alone in prayer. Take a morning, take an take a afternoon, take an evening, and just get alone and say, Lord, what is it that's holding me back? Finally, what small step can I make today that would start closing that gap between profession and practice? Notice I say small step. I'm thinking baby steps here. That's all I'm thinking. Don't say, I'm going to solve it. I'm going to close the gap before next weekend. Don't believe that. Oh, this is a marathon. This is a long race we're in. It's a lifelong journey. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Think progress, not perfection. But do something. Take a step Today, because I ask you again, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's the wake-up call. That's the boot camp basic that James is bringing to us here in this passage. Oh, I'll never forget the first time I heard that story about Blondin. My eyes were wide, and I thought, that is amazing. But that's the essence of faith. Blondin. Put people to the test. I wonder if our faith were put to the test today, what would be shown? I think a lot of us believe the right things. And I think a lot of us feel very warm and wonderful feelings of affection toward the Lord. But who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Who is willing to put their faith into action it's not faith plus works it's not faith minus works it's a faith that works that saves us father would you help us to truly know experience day by day that faith that works we're not earning our way nor are we wallowing in cheap grace thinking our ticket is punched but we're holding in perfect tension the marvelous challenges and teachings of your word. Help us to know today that we belong to you and that day by day as you work in our lives, you are closing that gap more and more between what we profess and what we practice. And may it all be for your glory because we belong to you. May our lives bring honor and glory to your name because you are the only one worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.